good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are today. I'm Ali Amagasu, and you're listening to the latest episode of Cloud Unfiltered. Today, uh, my co-host Pete Johnson is in an especially um, lovely hotel with a potentially dodgy Wi-Fi situation. Hey, Pete. Hey, Allie. Thanks for for uh, holding down the fort while I was on a plane for our last episode. So I apologize for missing that one. And yeah, I mean, as we were talking before we turned it on, I could scream Netflix, but it's the outbound that's the problem. So we'll hopefully maintain a good connection here for the next little bit. Yeah. So we'll hope that Pete's with us the whole time. But if he falls off, we're going to pretend we've never heard of him and just keep talking. Um, my guest today is a former Cisco guy who is no longer a Cisco guy now. He, his name is Robert Starmer. He is a founding partner with Cumulus Technologies. Welcome, Robert. Hi, thanks, Allie. Uh, thanks, Pete. Glad glad to be here. Hey, thank you so much. You know, it's uh, it's always cool to talk to uh, ex Cisco folks and share share our experiences. But today we're here to to talk about a lot of what you've um, experienced as you're advising companies that are kind of wrestling with cloud, how to implement it, and and what's the best path. Um, before we go into that, though, I want to ask what we always ask: How'd you get into tech? Yeah, uh, that's 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 a good question. Well, I I guess I was always a techie. Um, I mean, I remember my grandmother saying, "Well, clearly you're going to be an engineer someday." So that's probably <laughs> what set me on this path. Um, you know, even as a five year old, apparently I was taking things apart and putting them back together. You know, that kind of classic thing. Uh, but but really, I, I went to school, uh, got a double E uh, degree, and uh, never did any electrical engineering. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that, that, that pretty much went right out the window from the very get go. I focused on sort of the computer side of things. Um, and really started focusing on automation. So right out of school, it was all about how do you automate processes? Um, I was building libraries. I guess there was a little electrical engineering in there for uh, for microchip development. And, uh, uh, you know, that was, was one of these tasks that you had to sort of do lots of the same thing over and over and over again. And that sort of carried throughout my career. Um, when I actually started working at Cisco, I, I was working on content distribution which was effectively, how do you automate delivering content out to the edge of this network that we were starting to build at the time, it's 20 years ago. So you know, uh, it's been been a little bit of a while uh, since, since doing that. Um, and ever since then, automating data center technologies. And then finally, this cloud thing came around, right? And uh, we started, started looking at how do we actually automate the network and the compute resources and the storage systems and make all those pieces fit together. So it's always been sort of an infrastructure up view for me, um, but that's what drove me into technology was just sort of automating all these pieces and making them making them work nicely together. Yeah, boy, if there's ever been a problem that needs to be solved, it's that. And that's, you know, clearly ongoing, right? Yeah, it, it doesn't seem to end, right? We it's had like... the guys on from SaltStack recently, and it was fascinating, um, you know, hearing what they had to say about, the, they, they went into the history of automation. And uh, it's incredible. It seems like a problem that kind of gets solved. And then, you know, new technology brings new, new uh, labor intensive uh, jobs that need to be automated again. Yeah, well, it's I find it interesting because every time we think we've sort of abstracted things in the right yeah. way and automated those abstractions, somebody says, oh, well, actually, I want to put another layer on top of that and abstract that. And now let's figure out how we do all of that, which we're starting to do manually. And then we say, no, why are we doing this manually? This is crazy. Let's automate this thing, you know? Yeah, that's exactly what they were getting at. Yeah, it's yeah. a problem that seems to get solved Kind of like raising children. Just when you know what to do with the three-year-old, they turn four. Uh, yeah. You don't know what to do with them anymore. Constantly <laughs> shifting. So yeah. tell me about Cumulus Technologies. What do you guys uh, do? 
Yeah, so we focus on helping people make use of this cloud thing. Um, you know, again, sort of my history was was looking at infrastructure and how infrastructure worked and automating infrastructure. And so the first thing I really focused on when I left Cisco was consulting and helping Cisco with some of the OpenStack customers that they had, where you know part of the problem was getting the right infrastructure in place. But the next part that that sort of came up as that big hurdle was how do we automate this infrastructure and make it viable? Um, what I then learned was that that was sort of only half of the problem. Once we actually managed to make the system stable and reproducible and upgradable and sort of automating all those tasks, the opposite side had to be automated as well and educated in, in how do you actually start making use of these resources more effectively? Because people were treating uh, this now newly automated infrastructure in much the same way they were treating classic IT infrastructure. The, the, the shift hadn't happened for the end users. So we've really started focusing not just on helping that sort of whole strategy, how are you going to use these cloud tools, what are they going to do for you, but also how do you implement them and then how do you get your organization to really make the best use of that resource, whether that be education, whether that be some integration work with the automation tools that the developers already have, and sort of putting all those pieces together. So when you say end users that weren't necessarily, you know, adapting or getting the full benefit, are you talking about developers or? Sometimes you... it was developers. Sometimes it was the IT staff. Um, mm -hmm. You know, th there are plenty of people that, that you know, will look at any new piece of technology and want to sort of own it and, and think that the only way they, they can own it is by making it a manual process, right? Sort of the classic problem of, well, if, if I automate this, I automate my job away. Right. And to right. me, automation makes jobs easier, not makes them go away. Um, there are still operations and, and developers that need to work together. I mean, actually, one of the really interesting things, there's this whole DevOps movement, right? And everybody's like, ah, DevOps is taking care of all operations. <laughs> we no longer need operations. And actually, even more recently, I'm hearing people start talking about no ops. Let's not have ops at all. I'm like, that's ridiculous. It's like saying serverless doesn't actually need servers. Serverless abstracts the servers away, absolutely. Much like DevOps abstracted some of the operational complexities away, but developers don't want to manage operating systems. This is my, my, my number one paradigm. This is why serverless is so popular uh, as, a, as a technology space or a technology concept, because as a developer, I want to focus on my application. I want to focus on how I make that better. And anytime I have to interact with the infrastructure and operate the infrastructure, I increase complexity for my application. Right, so we like these layers of abstraction because of that. And, and so, yeah, when I'm talking about uh, improving the end user experience, it's how do I make it easier for an end user developer, an end user marketing engineer who's looking at the system saying, I, I need a feature that looks like this. Right? I'd love to have a developer work on that, but I don't want the developer to also have to think about the security implications of their underlying infrastructure and right. all, all the resources that go along with that. Right. You said serverless, and I bet that uh, Pete's leg is twitching. Over there. That's the keyword, right? That is one of his um, things he's quite passionate about. So, uh, yeah. any questions there, Pete, about that? Well, Robert, I'm glad that you, that you you said something that I certainly believe in, which is, you know, if you're going to start to get into serverless application architectures, you you and you're the developer, you certainly don't care about things like OS. And like I I saw a thread on Twitter over the weekend about people complaining about the version of Linux that Amazon uses on Lambda versus some options that you have if you use Google Cloud Functions. <laughs> I thought, man, if you're worried about the the version of Linux that your your functions are running in, you're probably doing serverless wrong. Oh, I, absolutely. You know, right. So clearly, yeah, I thought that you might feel the same way. And it sounds like if if I can use this to sort of segue into to, to 
a little bit, you know, double click on your on what you guys are doing at Cumulus a little bit. You you kind of sever broke this up into there's kind of the infrastructure side of the house, whether you're doing bare metal or you're doing VMs or Kubernetes or function as a service runtime. So those are kind of your your different layers of abstraction you could potentially have there. And then you kind of have the 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 application architectures that a developer might use on top of those, whether it's monoliths or microservices or or full-blown serverless. Where are you seeing people struggle with this change that we see going on? Is it is it more on that infrastructure side of the house to understand how to how to sort of climb up that that abstraction that we're talking about? Is it the the folks on the dev side and sort of the cultural change that's required to take advantage of those application architectures? Is it a mix or is it something else? I, I think it's a, a, a bit of a mix. Um, there certainly are some challenges on the operational side. Like I said, people really like when they feel that they own a technology space right. and they have their manual processes to manage that space. They don't want to give them up, even though it would be more efficient to do so. And and, and yet you have the developers, like I said, the, the DevOps community sort of said, hey, we can do all of this, right? We'll, we'll, we'll do the operations because we now have automated endpoints, resources that we can ask for something to happen without having to ask a human uh, to, to do something for us. Sure. And so they loved that initially, but then all the complexity of managing that infrastructure and those underlying resources came to bear on the folks that are supposed to be adding features, adding capabilities to your business. And I always look at strategy as, as sort of a, a business first strategy. I know in, in the technology space, usually we get so deep in the weeds of, oh, well, what Kubernetes operator can we apply to improve the performance of our system? You're like, well, what do I care? Why do I care? Right. You know, it's, it's not about Kubernetes. It's not about serverless or any of these other technologies unless it helps the business. All right, so if you start there, if you start at the, what is the business value in doing this and how is cloud going to improve your life? Then you can look at, at the resources that you have, both people and operational resources to say, we can make those now help us improve our environment. And then lastly, we can say, okay, now, now that we understand sort of how those systems should improve our environment and improve our life, uh, make our lives easier in a sense, uh, how do we get the developers to make use of those technologies? In some cases, like with serverless functions, like with uh, Kubernetes, the developers sort of jumped on the bandwagon and said, this is the technology I want, uh, or, or even containerization yeah. is a more generic model of all of that. Um, but then there was a gap because the operations team said, well, we're not ready to implement those sorts of services and functions yet. We, we haven't figured out how they fit into our overall strategy. Um, and so there was a big disconnect. And I'm seeing that disconnect close, right? I mean, tools like CCP and uh, the, 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 the breadth of sort of managed orchestration platforms that are out there, uh, I think really sort of help the system uh, and, and, and help, help the operations teams that still exist uh, get a handle on how to implement some of the cloud functions that uh, that developers are looking for, whether they be in public cloud or still in private cloud, where there's still a lot of need. Not everybody can put their data into the public cloud, whether it be for uh, you know security concerns or just masses of data. You know, I, I'm talking to a customer that uh, generates, I think, four to eight terabytes of data per system, and they have about 150 systems that they're working with every day. That's not going in the cloud. Uh, there's just no way for them to get that's, it there. That's right? too heavy. That's too heavy, right? So they have to operate the cloud-like tools because their developers want them in their own data center, 
right? Now, do they want to use public cloud resources? Do they want to go with a hybrid model? Sure, they'd like to, but that's just not architecturally acceptable to them today because the technology isn't there. We don't have, you know, 100 gig links into our data centers into the public cloud yet. You know, once we get there, maybe this 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 uh, this equation changes a bit. Yeah. Well, the thing that, that I always hit on when, when you know, because I spend most of my time doing enablement of either Cisco Field or, or Cisco, the part of the Cisco partner ecosystem, is if you understand that developers only want one thing, they're under tremendous pressure to create innovation. And the way that they do that is by, by getting more iterations out of their headcount, mm -hmm. right? So I always, whatever's fastest, that's what they want. And it's not fast in terms of application performance, it's fast in terms of how quickly can I do, uh, I write code, I deploy it to production, I get feedback from a user, it tells me whether it's an awesome feature or a ter terrible feature, and I throw it away if it's a terrible feature, I iterate over it again if it's a good feature, right? So the, right. it's that more iterations, more innovations mindset. If you understand that about a developer community, that goes a long way towards understanding their behavior, right? Because to, to a developer, there's no such thing as shadow IT, it's just work, right? right. It, it, there is no shadow IT because they're just looking for what is the most expeditious way for me to get my feature to my customer, right? And and that's that's the good developers. There's still plenty of developers that are just like, <laughs> nope, if you're not going to give me those tools, then I'm going to do it the old way. And every six months, we'll release a feature. And yeah. maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. But if it doesn't, eh, we'll get you something else in another six months. And that's part of the education process. There are developers that unless you give them the tools and show them how you can use them to accelerate their feature development, the engineering managers aren't going to push for it. And the engineers themselves are just going to do what they're being told to do, which is follow these processes. And that's how you do work here. Um, you know, and that's that's a large part of, of the discussion is, you know, we have all these new technologies, we want to be able to implement them and turn them on, uh, you know, enabling any of the platform as a service type offerings, whether it be function as a service, or even just, you know, auto auto building your application for you and containerizing it, which seems to be sort of the other part of the past space. Um, you know, those tools are very important tools for us to be able to leverage. But we have to figure out how they fit into the engineering lifecycle then as well. Sure. Uh, you know, just saying functions is going to resolve all of our problems only makes sense if your developers actually think in functions, and not all developers do, right? right. If you're a JavaScript developer or a Node.js developer, yeah, your life is functions. You know, you do Haskell, okay, functions is your life. That's the space you live in. Um, but if you're a Java developer or you know, classic Ruby or C++ developer, even that's probably not where you're thinking. You're thinking in a much different space, and so you need to have the right tools in place to automate the backend services that support you. Um, now, there was another another interesting uh, sort of space that, like I said, the, there's the DevOps space, and we're start, I think we're sort of seeing that split apart, right? Serverless and and platform as a service type type environments really are platform services that break the operational boundary, right? My operational boundary as an application developer now is my application operations, not my infrastructure operations. Sure. Right, and and uh, I've seen a couple of people now start talking about no ops. This idea that oh, I've put my operations in the public cloud, and so I don't have to think about that anymore. Well, yeah, if you can use the public cloud, maybe that's the right term for it. But you're still operating something. You still have an application that has a life cycle that needs to be updated and upgraded over time. You know, how are you going to deal with? You know, as Pete, you're saying, you know, it's like I'd, I'd like to be able to turn a feature on and see if it works. And if my customer doesn't like it, either I turn it off or change it. That's an operational process in its own right. Yeah. It's just not operating a computer. 
right? <laughs> that's, so, that's, hey, that's, somebody that's has to check CloudWatch when something goes wrong, right? So right, that exactly. is, that's your ops person. <laughs> exactly. I mean, exactly. I, I'm with you. I'm not a big fan of the no ops term for exactly the reasons that you're bringing up. But it, but it is ultimately about, you know, how quickly can I get this turnaround? And depending upon, I agree with you, whatever, whatever, whatever programming background you might come from, I mean, there's a certain amount of unlearning object-oriented programming to get your head around microservices um, or serverless architectures, certainly, that, that we see. Um, yeah. Now, you, you name-dropped CCP a little bit ago, um, just to, to fully spell that out there, <laughs> a system container platform, which, by the way, is now available in the DevNet Sandbox. If you want to try that out for free, you get at least six hours for free. You can extend that to a full week. Um, if you go to, to developer.cisco.com slash Google, you'll find it as one of the sandboxes towards the bottom if you haven't had your hands dirty with that. Yeah, um, look, the, the, reason, the reason that I name dropped it wasn't, I wasn't trying to put an ad in here, but, but more, just the <laughs> fact that, more just the fact that this class of tool, right, a tool that sort of abstracts away a lot of the infrastructure complexity, the underlying management complexity, and lets the operators, you still have to, somebody's still going to have to manage the underlying servers. Somebody still has to manage the underlying storage and the underlying network services uh, and potentially figure out how they're going to tie into the larger enterprise organization. But the, the abstraction panel that you affect get from a tool like CCP, I think is really, really empowering because it lets you further break up that dev and ops cycle, the thing that yeah. is, I think, causing the new friction. How do I make sure that my security platform is appropriate, that, that, that I'm actually securing my resources, right? Somebody's going to have to still run a container registry that has a back-end security uh, engine in it, right? So that, so that we're actually doing at least static analysis of the containers that get built. Um, those tools are things that can be operated through a platform like CCP, and that's why I brought that up. Right. Well, and it, but I think if you get your hands dirty with it, it, it gives a good point. I think it, it, one of the potential handoffs is you go into CCP, you create a you create a tenant cluster. You have to make all kinds of decisions about the networking and the storage that are going to be available to that cluster. At the end of that process, you get a .env file that you can hand to a developer and say, "Here, go configure kubectl with this," and that is that's like one of the main handoff points is the developer doesn't care about most most in most cases doesn't care about anything any of the decisions that were made up until that point but right. they'll operate within that context of give me that env file you know i can do an export kube config equals you know point to that file and now i'm good to go now i can right. use Helm charts now i can you know do all kinds of stuff to deploy things on top of that and configure my ingresses and, and all that fun stuff Right, and, and I think there's a there's another level of operations. Like I said, the, the the shift has now become how do I operate my application? And one of the things that I think is really interesting, um, and and it's I think this is the development in the, the developments, the developer space, the developer development um, uh, space is uh, this move to continuous delivery, continuous deployment type tools. Yes. Um, I was watching one of the one of the Googleites uh, talking about the fact that uh, developers shouldn't use the kubectl tool. Or, sorry, cube control. Tool. Right. I was going to say, when, when Pete pronounced it that way, I was like, I just read an article saying it's supposed to be cube control. Cube control. But I've oh, only heard cube cuddle until I read that article. Are, are, <laughs> so are, this is, we're going to have this a is, versus GIF war here yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah it's that one. Well, it's just like I don't exactly know how you pronounce Kubernetes, 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 uh, Kubernetes. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I'm not Greek, so I can't pronounce the actual Greek right. word. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it, I've I've seen that CNCF actually has released a document that describes how you're supposed to pronounce these things. 
but I, I know I heard a couple of presentations from one of the one of the first four Googleites that that released the Kubernetes service onto the world. And he was like, yeah, we called it Cubecuddle because we thought it was cute, you know? <laughs> and so I, I'm like, yeah, I think that's really what it's called. Uh, <laughs> Excellent, but, but, settled. Yeah, it's settled. You know, we have decided here mm -hmm. that it is Cubecuddle. Forget the CNCF now, <laughs> right. but um, but but no. The the point was, you know, even a even that level of interaction with what really is the infrastructure of your application, right? So if you're managing at the cube control level, you're thinking about a deployment, which is an operations aspect that sort of thinks about mm -hmm. how your application scales up and down. You want to think about how it scales, but you just don't don't necessarily want to say, oh, I want a deployment. Oh, and I want uh, you know an auto scale group uh, attached to that deployment. And, you know, it's it's like you're almost thinking at too low a level still. And the idea is that we want to further raise that abstraction level and raise that abstraction level and raise that abstraction level till all you have to think about are the functions that your application needs to implement. Yeah, you're right? you're making the to a certain degree you're making the serverless argument, but you're also making the argument that the developer interaction with that that cluster, that Kubernetes cluster shouldn't be with kubectl, it should be with git is really what you're saying. Right, right. And that's that's really where people are starting to push this is that, um, you know, I, I, there's, a, there's another tool that I really like, uh, which is from the Helm guys called Draft, uh, draft.sh. Uh, and it's just a really lightweight wrapper around Helm, but it takes care of building your container for you, pushing your container into the registry, potentially configuring your Kubernetes environment if your registry actually has security like it should um, to, to actually lock down access to those resources. Uh, and that tool is in, in my mind sort of the lightweight embodiment of this idea. Don't deal with the Kubernetes model you might have to, you might still have to go in and modify the Helm charts that get auto-created uh, because your application is going to grow in scale and complexity, but it's it's sort of a one-shot deal. Once you've defined what that looks like, you can reuse that template over and over and over again. And the developer interaction is run this tool to create my environment and then run this tool to update the running state in my test cluster, right? So now I have a way of actually testing the Kubernetes environment without having to get too deeply into the weeds and and still get some value out of then the rest of the life cycle. So the CI process can do its job, the CD process can do the, its delivery and deployment because we've already modeled and tested it, but I'm not getting into the cube control commands to actually have to do that, which I think is the really powerful part of all of this. Cool, now are you finding that people coming from a monolith world are struggling with that? Yeah, people that are building monoliths, um, first thing they think is, oh, I have to go make all this microservices. It's like, oh, well, hold on. Uh, you know, you have an application that it works. And I guarantee you, your application is not one bundle that does everything because you've got a database. And you probably ended up building a separate front end web server to scale the thing. You know, so your monolith is really monolithic core knowledge about your application space. It's it's your business logic is your real monolith. Um, and even if it's, that's not the case, and in many cases they're sort of tied together, a Java uh, you know Java application that's running under Apache. So you already have your web front end and then your your business logic and and view control effectively are, are combined. Uh, but you can actually move those things very easily into uh, a, a cloud world. A as VMs, which is probably how it's running already, um, but it's actually fairly straightforward if that system can scale at all uh, to, to just containerize those processes. Um, and that's, I think, a very effective way of moving into the, the modern model for how we want to operate our data centers. Right? If, if Kubernetes really gives us this sort of write once, run anywhere kind of a, a, an application development model, 
and tools like Helm make that a little easier and tools like Draft maybe make the development side a little bit easier. I think it's actually fairly straightforward to start moving into what I think of as the modern uh, dev, no ops <laughs> kind of system space sure. um, where, where we can really uh, differentiate these resources. The operations team, the underlying infrastructure operations team can do its job, can provide the right level of Kubernetes or function as a service type 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 capabilities to our development end users. Um, and those pieces can really start to come together. And there's no reason why uh, you can't build large monoliths initially and then do the, the classic break it up into microservices model, which is first wrap an API around it, right? Because once you have an API, you've defined how other services can talk to you. And then from that API, you can start breaking your application apart if it's appropriate. In fact, um, the guy who wrote the microservices book, and I can never remember the guy's name. I need to go look that up again. Uh, but I mean, in reading through that book of, of how how sort of one of the first microservices proponents really got into this, they said, oh, well, we've built this new application or we decided to build this new application and we started by defining it all as microservices. And then we realized that that didn't really work. And so they went back and wrote their application as a monolith, even though they had written code in a microservices model, they combined mm -hmm. it all back together. And once they understood how their application worked, which most monolith developers now understand, they understand sort of some of the core internal resources that they could break apart. Um, you can then start doing that, that disaggregation if it's important. Um, it, you know, many monoliths are only, you know, hit, uh, you know, 100 times a day or 1000 times a day, there's no real need to break that into a microservice, it's not going to improve the performance, it might increase the complexity of the development cycle, uh, which is actually one of the things that microservices do do is it makes it a little bit harder to develop unless you're already linking and li living and thinking in that microservices world. Um, because you lose some of the visibility that you might have had previously. And so how do you deal with that? Right? How do you deal with understanding the interaction between all those different services that you've now deployed? That's that's a problem, and it changes again the operations at the application level. Uh, and and most people don't think of that. They think, oh, we're going to go to microservices, going to solve all of our problems, going to make everything easier to do. Everything's API driven, so you know it's all wonderful and beautiful, and this this fits the modern paradigm. And they forget the fact that yeah, now you have five different services or ten services or even you know, crazy and hundred services all talking together. Potentially, it's easier. Uh, potentially, it's easier to debug because, well, I'm calling your API and I'm not getting the right response. Well, here's what the API does. Here's the API specification. Uh, most companies don't write good API specifications. So that's not going to help you as a developer unless you sort of think through that entire process to say, okay, what does this mean to move to microservices? Right? So it's, it's a bit of a challenge. The backend tooling is all there. Whether it's a monolith or a microservice, both of them, I think, fit together really well into a modern Kubernetes-driven environment, right? We've got good storage uh, scale. We've got good network scale. Um, we've got good container management scale. Um, but the interactions between those uh, is, is, I think, where, where we still have uh, some really interesting gaps. So it sounds like if I could try to paraphrase that just a little bit, it sounds like in your, in your what you guys are seeing at, at your practice is... The low-hanging fruit there is to simply put a, a RESTful API vernier on top of whatever your existing monolith is, deploy that, you know, deploy that as one big Kubernetes cluster, and then figure out how to break it up from there, the pieces that you might want to individually scale or, or 
or individually isolate. Is that is that like the rule of thumb you're talking about here? Yeah, in a sense. So I mean, part of it comes down to how big is your monolith, right? Um, right. It's it's very easy to create a Kubernetes cluster that targets you know 40 core, 256 gig like machines, uh, and say, yeah, I'm gonna run one container. And it's going to consume all those resources because that's my monolith and that's the scale that that application runs at. At that point, there probably are some efficiencies that can come from actually breaking that system apart because clearly it's doing a lot of work all in one spot. Um, but the, the problem with doing that and the reason why that might even be an appropriate model for somebody, the problem with breaking that thing apart is that you do add developer complexity. Um, because now you have to think about, you know, if you take a chunk out, yes, you have to wrap an API around it. You have to document how that API works. The, the team that was previously just passing uh, remote procedure messages maybe now has to think about how to change those re remote procedure messages to RESTful calls. Um, although I guess now with uh, gRPC becoming popular, um, that's another approach to this. So you can sort of keep the remote procedure call model and just use a web-enabled version of that, which works mm -hmm. really well with the microservices space. Um, there are other tools that will also help uh, because there are now uh, uh, tools for tracing messages at the network level, basically tracing those HTTP messages as they go back and forth. Uh, and there are service mesh tools. This is sort of like the, the new piece of the microservices space is the, uh, tools like Istio and... Uh, um, what's the other one? Conduit and Linkerd uh, are sort of the well. Conduit's the new version of Linkerd, but uh, but basically, uh, Linkerd and, and Istio are the two popular service meshes, and people build this out of all kinds of other things too. Um, but those are tools that live in that Kubernetes uh, space, principally at least today, and and provide a a visibility engine and um, basically a control function engine on top of all of these little services that get deployed. So, you know, again, when we're thinking about sort of this complexity life cycle and, and, and where the right path forward is for a company, you can look at, you know, does it make sense to take your monolith and just containerize it? In many cases, that's probably fine. That gets us from point A to point B. I may not even have to wrap it in an API, right? The first thing is if, if my application runs all on its own, I don't have a separate uh, front-end API service or front-end service at all. Um, I might already have an API on that anyway, even if it's not RESTful, it might still be some form of API that I'm communicating with. Uh, but but I have all that there. The first thing is, how am I operating that application in, in production? And the question is, is Kubernetes the right model for operating that ap application in production? Or could I make that the right model? And what am I trading off to do that? Right. If, if you can answer that question and say, yeah, look, Kubernetes really helps. It simplifies how I how I deploy, potentially even how I manage scale. I've got embedded load balancing capability that I can leverage if I want to. Um, and the nice thing about going to Kubernetes as that abstraction layer is that the infrastructure operations team can operate up to the Kubernetes layer, and the application team can then look at how they operate against that Kubernetes layer. Um, also makes it very easy to go to a public cloud provider if that's appropriate for that particular application. So are, are you seeing, are you seeing it just taking that abstraction? So if we, if we reduce it to, all right, I've got some monolith that runs in, let's just say for the sake of argument, a Linux shell is, a you know, and to a lot of applications, a Linux shell is a Linux shell is a Linux shell, right? It might not know or care whether it's running in a VM versus a container. Yep. But if you can get some operational efficiency, certainly on the infrastructure side, and maybe even with the CICD tool chain and taking that monolith and running it in a containerized environment versus a VM, I, I, 
do, do you guys, are you seeing benefit to that in the field? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, one, one thing that's nice about the container world, people think that that's the end goal, but I also look at the container world as, as a different packaging technology. Um, in the Linux space, especially, we had RPM and Debian packages. Those were sort of the two classes of packages. And one of the problems that those tools had was that when you wrapped your application in that particular class of technology, you were still saying, oh, I'll give you a list of all the other things I need to make this one piece of the puzzle work. Uh, I, I still remember you know, deploying an RPM and saying, oh, you're missing these three things. So then you go find those three things and try to install them. Oh, well, you're missing these three other things. And you try to go install them. And eventually you have this massive tree of things that you installed that you don't really exactly remember what version they were, but you got them installed and your application seemed to run, but maybe it doesn't run that well. The nice thing about containers is that effectively you're doing all of that integration upfront and bundling it together. And that's why I say, even for a monolith, you don't necessarily need to break it apart because the container process is really just making sure that you have all the right pieces at the right time. So from the from the developer's desktop, potentially, all the way through to production, you could be using exactly the same set of resources. And that just simplifies a lot. Um, and actually even thinking about like the OpenStack space where we had all these different services, uh, kind of microservices, not exactly, but kind of microservices like, they were all working together uh, and often you would deploy them all onto the same machine, especially the control plane components. You'd all deploy them all onto the same machine. But if you changed one control plane component model, it would potentially break your entire environment because, oh, it needed a different library. So the containerized benefit is more about, at least in my mind, more about keeping all the things together, packaging all the core resources and giving you a space to run those resources that doesn't impact anybody else. Right. So, so you could argue that the big thing that Docker as a company brought to the table wasn't necessarily containerization because that was there for a really long time. But but the Docker file and then the ability to share those Docker files out on repos, most notably Docker Hub, I mean, that, that gets to some of these things that you're talking about where the package management in as manifested in a Docker file because of the way the Docker file layering works you have a much better chance of not having those missed libraries and that you know that Debian example that you talked about. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And 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 really, I'd take it, sort of take it one step further. It's the image that the Docker file creates. Yes. Right. So the Docker file is the description, and it's good to have that because you should be able to rebuild from that description. But the nice thing is saying, well, if I've built it with this image, it has exactly the code that I developed at the time that I put this thing together. It has exactly the libraries, whatever state they were in. I mean, I, I remember still installing things on an Ubuntu machine, and I, I I love Canonical, I love Ubuntu, but there were times when I would install something, everything would work fine, I would give it to somebody else, they would install it and say it didn't work. Yeah, you get into version hell. And really. you're like, what, what happened? Oh, now I try to install it and it breaks for me too, because somewhere along the way, some package somewhere got updated, and we don't know what it was. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's that that little bit of minutia that, that can still break your entire system. So that's the real value of the containerization process in my, in my mind. And then the Kubernetes layer on top is just a better operational management layer for that, yeah. that again, lets us let the developer do what they do best, develop code, and lets the operations team, whether it be a public cloud or uh, or your own enterprise organization, preferably using a tool like CCP, um, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, can, can improve that, that underlying environment, right? So it can provide a, a nice demarcation point. 
And that gives you a chance of saying, well, look, your developers don't have to think so much about that infrastructure anymore. So we can now train them to better use those resources. How do you use Kubernetes most effectively to really accelerate feature development rather than accelerating operational development? Right. That to me is the big shift. Good Lord. That's a lot to think about. <laughs> I mean, as you're talking about this, I'm just thinking, say I was someone who was thinking about coming to you. I mean, where do these decisions, who decides whether, okay, we're going to break up, we're going to take this monolith application. That's just one application. We can assume any company has hundreds of thousands of applications to look at. And we've got developers that are using old processes or aren't thinking the right way because they are specializing in a certain kind of code and they need to update True. their thinking. And we've got operators who need to change their way of thinking. Who usually comes to you and how long are your engagements to help these people? Because I imagine it's a cultural transformation as well as a technical transformation. So to me, it's that the technical transformation happens and is driven by the cultural transformation. So, I mean, I try to talk to the C-level folks and we start with strategy, right? What is your actual cloud strategy? Are you going to go microservices and all this? And is there a business driver behind that? I mean, it might be that the board wants you to, and so that's the business driver, right? But that's the first question is, what is your actual cloud strategy and how is it going to help you improve your business? If we can define that, then we can look at architecture and we can figure out what is the actual architecture that will help you implement that. And once you've defined the architecture, then everything else I think falls out. Okay, we're gonna have to find the right set of tools that support the architecture, right? And then we're going to have to find, how do you get your engineers, your, your developers, all of the staff that you, that you have that are using those resources, the operations teams that are potentially supporting these new sets of tools, if we're going to go implement new tools, how do you get them up to speed? Um, so yeah, it's, it's often a long road. It's not something that happens overnight, but also companies have already started down these paths. So they have engineers that have some understanding. It's matter right. of I assume there's a lot of individuals within any IT organization that have a great deal of understanding. Maybe, you know, who knows a certain percentage of any of the developers, a certain percentage of any of the operators are very forward thinking and they're keeping they're they're keeping track of ways that, you know, oh gosh, I wish we could implement this. This will make things so much easier if we could automate this, if we could use this tool, right. but at some point, somebody has to bring them all together, right? As little individuals in their silos, they can't do much. Yeah. Well, and that's why it starts for me with strategy. Once the once the corporate strategy is defined, if the CEO, CIO, you know, chief engineering officer, whoever you have, says this is the way we're doing it, and is actually willing to push that all the way down to the lowest levels of their organization, right. you know, especially for large organizations, that takes time. For smaller organizations, it can happen overnight. Right, 50 person companies can say, this is the way we're gonna go about doing this. I know we had one team playing with Kubernetes, another team that was doing DCOS. We're just gonna stick with Kubernetes. This is the answer for us. Here are how these tools are gonna to come together. If we were doing something in DCOS, let's figure out how we transition that, et cetera. That's the process that has to has to come 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 to bear. That God, becomes change management, right? Yeah. That's a great part about being in a startup. I miss yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is the way it is. But even at the corporate level, even at the very large corporation level, it can happen as well. I mean, I, I see that some of the best run corporations have somebody at the top that says, this is the way it is, and it pushes itself all the way down the organization ladder. Now, not all organizations are that sort of top controlled, um, but even still, if you can define what those processes need to look like, then I think it's very straightforward for an organization to define the architecture and work towards that architecture over time, even if it takes years. Um, but I think you get be business benefit every single time you make a, a sort of a, a quantum leap in in functionality within your within your IT organization. That's interesting to me that you're working with the C-level executives. I mean, it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. But I know that, you know, as a marketer in this industry, we spend a lot of time trying to market to line of business managers and directors and even developers. And 
you know, just listening to you talk about this big picture, you think, I don't know how much good that's doing if I'm convincing one developer or 10 developers within, a, within an organization that this is the right solution, when really they may not have much say at the end of the day. Well, it, I think it does go both ways. All right, so so helping the helping the folks at the edge, you know, one organization might suddenly become more efficient. That actually makes it easier to show the C-level folks that, look, this is why this is so important. Look yeah. at this one team, look at the efficiencies that they've gained, look at how their feature acceleration has come way up uh, from where it was. Instead of six months to a feature, now we're talking a week. Um, bigger features might take longer, sure, but we're actually enabling this. Look at how our customer satisfaction has gone up. So I think it sort of is a multi-factor component. There's, there's no one right answer and no one right resource. Uh, but but I find if you can get those C-level folks on board, it's so much easier because the rest of the organization, the entire organization can start focusing on this. Um, I've seen so many teams where, uh, you know, we, we deployed an OpenStack system three or four years ago for an organization. One team was already using OpenStack. They'd done it themselves because, and, and today you see that a lot with Kubernetes in exactly the same way. But what we're really looking for is how can you make sure that the entire organization can get those benefits and get them as quickly as possible? That only happens if everybody's on board. And the best way to get everybody on board is to get the CEO to agree that this is the right path forward. Right, right. right. <laughs> so if, if, I'm a, if I'm a CEO, CIO, see something, um, and I'm, I'm struggling right now, other than calling Robert Starmer at Cumulus Technologies and engaging, which, which do, really yeah. does seem like the wisest choice after listening <laughs> to this discussion, um, what would be your three top tips to help them get forward? If they're just looking at this and it seems like this massively complex issue, there's a lot, they know they need to deal with containers because it's happening under their own roof, whether they like it or not. They know that their developers are using the cloud, but probably in a disorganized fashion. You know. When they come to you, what are your kind of your common, your best practices you would pass along? So, I mean, number one, I think, is look at and see if Kubernetes is the right abstraction layer. I think it is for most companies at this point, um, but there is work to get there. Uh, secondly, find a management platform so that your IT staff can manage Kubernetes systems, both the own, their, their, their own in, in their local data center, because most people are not going to just throw away their data centers. They might decide over time to get rid of them but I think that's actually a, a, a fool's game too. Uh because of all kinds of other things that we could talk about at another time, but but right, so so look at look at that as an abstraction layer. I think that's the appropriate one for most users, most use cases, and then look at how you're going to educate your developers and your IT staff to make use of that resource and make that the boundary between those two teams, uh, a joint boundary in a sense, instead of uh, two separate teams working on two completely separate environments. Uh, I think if if you follow those processes, I think you'll actually be very successful with with cloud, at least in today's environments. I love it. Those are good, solid tips. Excellent. So we're running up against uh, the end of our time here. Um, Pete, any last question you need to squeak in before I wrap it up? No, I'm good. Gosh, Robert, thank you so much for, for sharing this stuff with us. This was definitely a different path. We have not been down with any of our other guests. I always appreciate someone who's adding something new to the conversation. So Excellent. <laughs> so, so thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I hope we can have you on in the future, maybe talk a little bit more about different use cases. I think it would be interesting. If we had more time, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, sure. industry use cases. Um, but for now, I will wrap it up. I will say thank you very much. Um, I appreciated uh, you being here and I enjoyed speaking with you. Great. Well, thanks so much for the time. I, I really enjoyed this conversation as well. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, Pete. Can't believe your Wi-Fi lasted. That was awesome. <laughs>